good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Today is kind of a sad day for me. We finished this little epistle of Jude. (laughs) This is our 22nd message in the book. I thought this was going to be a little brief study. I didn't have a clue what I was getting into, but I've really enjoyed my time with Jude. As we have said, uh, this Jude is not one of the twelve. This is, in fact, a child of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Yeshua. And I've really enjoyed spending the time with them. As we've seen in this little epistle, Jude goes into great detail about apostates, about apostasy. He talks about their judgment. In these first 16 verses, he just focuses on their character, their, their judgment, their, the problem with them. Then in verse 17, he says, But you, beloved... Remember that the apostles taught that this would come. So he gives the church instruction on how to protect themselves from falling away from the faith. He tells them, he says, build yourselves up on your most holy faith. In other words, get into the Word of God. Spend time in the Word of God. That's how you protect yourself. Know the truth. He says they are to do this while they are praying in the Holy Spirit. In other words, being dependent upon Yahweh to teach them to strengthen them. We don't do this in our own strength or ability. He says, as they do this, they will keep themselves in the love of God. Meaning they'll be walking in obedience to the Word of God as they're building themselves up on the most holy faith. Then in verse 22 and 23, he tells them to reach out to those who are coming under the influence of apostates. Because the apostates have infiltrated the church, because they're in there and part of the leadership, they're going to have effect on people. And we're to reach out to these people who have been touched by this apostasy and try to bring them back into the faith. He talks about, in this book, people who are falling, angels who fell. He goes into the great history of Israel and their fall, the Sodomites and their fall, the angels and their fall, and how all these people fell victims to apostasy. People who should have known better. I mean, angels who are in the very presence of God. So he says, people are going to get caught up with this. It's going to affect them. They're going to fall. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. Go out and reach these people. Pull them back. Snatch them out of the fire. He says, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others. Snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, you read this and you think, you know, if this apostasy is so dangerous, if it's so deadly, if it's so potentially polluting and harmful, do we really want to get involved in trying to help these people? I mean, is there a chance that we could lose our salvation? I mean, that would be a concern, wouldn't it? So in the next verse, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. When you think about the doctrines of Scripture, which element of God's saving promise is most encouraging to you, most satisfying, most attracting, attractive and most comforting to you? To me, the greatest doctrine of Scripture, to me, a hill that I'm willing to stand on, fight on, and die on, is the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. I'll compromise in a lot of areas. I'm not compromising there. That is too important. 
to understand that I don't have to do anything to earn my salvation, but that it is a gift of love from my Heavenly Father. That is an incredible truth. Paul put it this way in Romans 4, 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor. You understand that? You go to work, you do your job. When your boss comes to you, if he hands you your paycheck and he says, this is grace. He's saying, you're a worthless employee. You didn't do anything. Okay? Because the one who works, their wage is not credited as favor. It's what's due them. You've earned your paycheck. They give you your check. It's what is due. There's no grace involved there. And that's what he's trying to teach us here. If you earn something... It's not about grace. You paid your own way. He says, but the one who does not work, please understand that, but believes. See, he's making a contrast here between working and believing. He doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Our salvation is by grace. And the faith that is credited to us as righteousness is also a gift from God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Gospel takes away all boasting, people. There's nothing you can brag about. There's, you can't look at your neighbor and say, you know, I was smarter than him. I trusted Christ. He's not too bright. He's not too intelligent. No, there's nothing for you to boast in. And it says here, that not of yourself. What's not of ourselves? What does that refer to? Is it the faith? Some people say that, you know, it's the faith that's not of ourselves. Well, the demonstrative pronoun that is neuter in gender. And the words grace and faith are feminine. And some contend that a neuter pronoun can't refer to the feminine noun. So they say it can't be referring to faith. But I think it's wrong to assume that a neuter pronoun cannot refer to a feminine noun in the Greek. There are illustrations in classical Greek in which the demonstrative pronouns in the neuter gender may refer to feminine antecedents. Generally, when a neuter pronoun refers to something in the preceding context, it is not something neuter, specifically some noun. It usually refers to a statement. That most likely is what we have here. He may be referring, and I think he is, to the whole statement. By grace, through faith, you have been saved. That's what's not of yourself. The the by grace, faith, is not of yourself. It's a gift. The whole thing is a gift from God. Now to me, this gift by grace, through faith, salvation, is the most comforting, most exciting doctrine in the Scripture. And tied to this doctrine is another doctrine that thrills my soul, that blesses my heart, and that is that my salvation is secure. Security is a beautiful thing. We do all kinds, we spend all kinds of money for security. This is some, this is a security. This is a guarantee, a warranty package that you don't have to pay a dime for. Somebody else paid for the whole thing. I can do nothing to keep my salvation because I did nothing to earn it. I am eternally secure in His love. If any part of my salvation depends upon my power and my ability and my commitment and my righteousness, I'm damned. 
You know what? If I could lose my salvation, I would. You understand that? And so would you. If it could be lost, we would do it. Guarantee it. And the people who think they're keeping their salvation, that is arrogance, and they do not understand the gospel. And I don't mean that to be mean. But if you think you can lose it, you don't understand what you have. So I rejoice in the fact that my salvation is secure. I got a voice message yesterday from a man out of town who called me and said, I've been watching you on YouTube for a while. I really like this AD 70 doctrine. But this stuff about eternal security, I can't, I can't handle that. I can't, you, you need to stop doing that or I'm just not going to watch you. Goodbye. This is an important doctrine, people. You know, I wish I could have talked to him. I just got the voice message because I would have, there were some questions I would definitely like to ask. So you're hanging on to your salvation by your works? That's what's keeping you? That's a kind of a scary thing. You know, it's very comforting then in a book about apostasy, about people falling away, that this book begins and ends by talking about the security of the believer. Jude 1 says, kept for Yeshua the Christ. Verse 24, he is able to keep you from stumbling. So it's clearly God's power which enables to keep us safe, to keep us secure in our salvation. It's interesting how Jude concludes this epistle. You know, there's really no personal notes from him. He doesn't greet anybody, doesn't say hi to anybody. He just closes it with a doxology, which is really unique among the epistles of the New Testament. The word doxology comes from two Greek words, doxa, which means glory or praise, and legin, which means to speak. It means to speak of His glory. That's what a doxology is. It's a hymn of praise to Yahweh. And the Scriptures are filled with doxologies. Did you know that Psalm 150, the Psalms, the 150 Psalms, are divided into five books? And at the end of each of the five books is a doxology. 4113, 7218, 8952, 10648, and the entire 150 Psalm is a doxology that closes out the book. I think my favorite doxology is found at the end of Romans 11. After 11 chapters of doctrine, he breaks out and he, Paul just says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, this doxology is no doubt due to the whole discussion of salvation in chapters 1 through 11. Yahweh is to be praised for our salvation. And our text for today is a praise to Yahweh for the security of the believer. Let's look at these last two verses. He's not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Yeshua the Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Now is a conjunction that marks a shift in the letter and introduces this doxology. Now to Him is literally now to the One. Refers to Yahweh the Father. 
the author of the divine plan. You know, in light of the great danger to which Jude's readers are exposed, he deliberately emphasizes that it's God and God alone who keeps them. You can go out, you can reach out to these people because you're safe in Him. He's able, he says. This is from the word dunamai, from which we get our English words like dynamic, dynamo, and dynamite. Dunamai conveys the basic meaning of possessing and exerting an inherent ability to do something or accomplish an end. God's able to do it. So dunamai means to be able, to be capable of, to be strong enough to have the power to do something. And the present tense here pictures God's continual, inherent, supernatural ability. Basically, he's talking about his own omnipotence. He's omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. He's able to do this. He's able to keep you from falling. That's good because I'm not able to keep me from falling. He says, keep. It's fulasso here. And it means to watch, to carry out the function as a military guard or a sentinel. To keep one's eye upon that which so it might remain safe. Now this is different than the word keep used back in verse 21, which means to hold or possess. Fulasso is used to describe the shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night in Luke 2.8, which gives the image of the savage wolves ready to devour these sheep, so the shepherds are keeping watch. And this picture, I think, parallels our good shepherd, who Jude reminds us keeps watch over his sheep. He's able to keep us from stumbling, he says. This is the Greek word aphestas. It's from a negative a and pathio, which means to stumble, to cause to stumble. By putting a in front of patho, it's a negative aphastos. And it has the idea of you're not gonna, this is not gonna happen. It's the only place in the Bible where this is used. Literally means not stumbling and so exempt from falling. You're not gonna fall. Now, the ESV study Bible has a note here that says this. By stumbling, Jude means falling into sinner error. Is that what Jude's telling us here? Do you think that's what he's saying? Is this text saying God will keep you from sinning? Anybody experiencing that in your practical life? Huh? I don't think that's what it's saying here. Okay? If that's what it's saying, I'm like, hmm, okay, I got some problems. All right? I got some problems here. Kistemeyer writes this. The text describes believers who are kept by God Himself from stumbling into sin and thus from falling away from Him. So if you fall into sin, you fall away. Is that what he's saying here? Is Jude saying that Yahweh keeps us from falling into sin? Well, notice what James, Yeshua's brother says, Jude's brother, says this. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, James uses the root here, pathio, to explain that we all stumble in many ways. And in James 2.10, he says this, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he's become guilty of it all. So he refers to stumbling here as a, as a description of one who sins. So James says, we all stumble. But Jude says, He keeps us from stumbling. Which is it? Do we stumble or are we kept from it? 
Well, James uses stumble to refer to sin, but Jude uses apthestos to denote freedom from sin, not freedom from sin, but freedom or exemption from the eternal penalty that sin brings. He is able to keep you from stumbling. In other words, you are secure in His presence. You're going to mess up. You're going to sin. But you're secure in the presence of God. Let's look just for a moment at the biblical doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That's one of the five points of Calvinism. The acronym TULIP is used to describe this. The T stands for total depravity. What's the U stand for? Unconditional election. The L is... Limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. In other words, when God calls, you come. All right? And then we have the P of the tulip for perseverance of the saints. Now, when someone says they believe in perseverance of the saints, you have to find out what they mean by that because this doctrine can be interpreted in two different ways. All right? And the sad thing is most Calvinists will take the first definition that's view one says this, a true Christian will never fall away, but will live a life of holiness and obedience. They will always persevere in holiness. They will always live a holy life. Yes, most Calvinists will take this view and say, if you're a Christian, you will always live a holy life. You will persevere. That's what they mean by persevering in holiness. You're always going to live holy. All right. View two. The view that I hold, okay? No one whom God has brought to a saving knowledge of Yeshua will ever be lost. Which one of those is more comforting for you, okay? All right, this is perseverance. God is going to keep who are His. So basically, when I talk about perseverance of the saints, I'm talking about security, eternal security. Now, a representative of you one is John Piper. Piper says this, Many Christians think that saving faith is only a single act. Asking Jesus into your heart. First of all, false premise here, okay? Asking Jesus in your heart doesn't do anything for anybody. That's not in the Bible anywhere. The Bible does say, believe on the Lord Yeshua the Christ. It's believing in Christ that saves us. Piper goes on to say, saving faith is not a mere single act of receiving Jesus. Hmm, then what is it? What is it? It's not a single act. To him, it's a lifelong commitment. So, if it's not a single act, at what point do you get eternal life? And when I read that, I think it's not a single act, really, because the Bible says something like this, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Now, this is not saying that as many as keep on receiving him, the word received here is the aorist active indicative of lembano. The aorist tense indicates that at some point in the past, they received him. It's a verb that is put in the active voice stressing the activity of God. They received God in a past time. And after receiving him, they became his. They became children of God. Piper goes on to say, Saving faith is a life of faith. The evidence of authentic saving faith is it's pressing on. So how do you know you're saved? I keep going forward. 
Where's your assurance coming from? My works. My assurance comes from my works. I keep doing it. I'm living a good life. I feel good. Ugh. According to him, your assurance is based on your perseverance. And let me ask him, how do you know you'll continue? And if you stop pressing on, does that mean you never were saved? That's what Piper thinks. If so, at what point do you receive eternal life? If it's not a point in time, when is it? See, according to Piper, it's a process. It's a lifelong process. If this is true, if the reception of eternal life is a process that ends basically, I guess, in your death, it would logically have to be postponed to death. Because anything short of dying, maybe you'd quit persevering. And therefore, you'd be lost. That's not very comforting. Listen carefully, believer. We are saved by the act of faith, not the continuity of faith. If you're saved by the continuity of faith, then you never really have everlasting life until you die in faith. So you can't have everlasting life. You could have the five-year plan or the ten-year plan, but it can't be everlasting if you can lose it. And you certainly have no assurance. Listen to carefully what Piper writes. I'll be very personal to give it its sharpest point. If in the coming years I commit apostasy and fall away from Christ, it will not be because I have not tasted of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the miracles of God. I have drunk of His Word. The Spirit has touched me. I have seen His miracles. I have been His instrument for a few. But if over the next 10 or 20 years, John Piper begins to cool off spiritually and to lose interest in spiritual things, and becomes more fascinated with making money and writing Christless books. And I buy the lie that a new wife would be exhilarating and that children can fend for themselves and that the church of Christ is a drag and that the incarnation is a myth and that there is one life to live, so let's eat, drink, and be merry. If that happens, then know that the truth is this. John Piper was mightily deceived in the first 50 years of his life. In other words, if I ever fall away, I never knew it. I never under So he, how does this man have any assurance? He doesn't know what the future holds. He doesn't know if he'll keep going. So he's not sure if he's really there. He says his faith was an alien vestige of his father's joy. His fidelity to his wife was a temporary passion and compassion with social pressure. He's in effect saying, I don't have any assurance of eternal life because after 50 years of trusting Christ, he believes he could quit trusting and end up in hell. This man's a Calvinist too, by the way. Is he saved by his works? Or is he saved by Christ? See, the gift of eternal life is indefectible. Not the faith that has laid hold of it, though. It's widely held in modern Christendom that the faith of a genuine Christian cannot fail. Is that biblical? Does the Bible teach that a true believer will always walk in obedience? No, it does not. If so, why are all the exhortations in Scripture for believers to obey? Always he writes to these epistles, do this, do this, stop doing that. Stop. Why do we need all that? If it's automatic, we just, we're saved and we go on and we live happily ever after. The Bible teaches that a Christian can walk in sin and even turn from the faith. 
The Bible shows us that believers can live in a sinful state. You ever heard of these group called the Corinthians? I've seen churches named the first Corinthian church. I thought, my, my, you think not much. Wow. Paul writes to these Corinthians, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you. All right. An immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. Paul says, you guys are so messed up there. The Gentiles don't even do what you're doing. there." Now, is he writing this to Christians or is he writing to just a bunch of unsaved men in general? He's writing. You just got to back up to the beginning of the book. Who's he writing this to? Well, to the church of God. All right. He's not everybody in Corinth. No, the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. I'm writing to the ones who've been sanctified. They've been set apart. I'm writing to the ones who are saints. Never, ever in this epistle does he ever question their salvation. He never says, you know what? You guys might not even be Christians. He affirms it. He starts his letter by affirming them in Christ. You're Christians. And then he says, start acting like it. He says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you. Why? For the grace of God which was given you in Christ. They received the grace of God in Christ. It should be clear they were believers. But were they living in obedience? No, if you could do it wrong, they were doing it. So it's possible for someone who's a Christian to live a sinful life. But listen, people, even if that happens, they are still eternally secure. Oh, people don't like this. Oh, you're going to cause people to live in sin because you say it's okay. Listen, please understand this. I don't think it's okay to live in sin. I think it is terribly destructive. Back up two weeks to the message I preach on keep yourselves in the love of God. When you walk in obedience, your life is blessed. When you walk in disobedience, you're going to receive the judgment of God, His discipline. You're going to make your life really miserable. But no matter what you do or don't do, you will never affect your eternal security because that is finished. You're a child of God. You might get disciplined really hard along the way for sin. So I'm not advocating sin in any way, shape, or form. I'm just trying to tell you that if you become a Christian, you're a Christian forever. And if you think, listen, this is strong, but I think it's true. If you think you can lose your salvation, you don't understand salvation. You just don't understand it. You don't know what it is. You think you earned it, so you think you can lose it. And therefore, you're really confused. You know, I think the majority of churchgoers don't understand that our salvation is not based on what we do, but on what Christ did. I mean, they think, yes, Christ did something, but we do something too. That's the Roman Catholic Church, you know. They basically come right out, at least they come right out and say it. Christ's works were not enough to cover us. They were good, he helped out, but we got to add to it. Now, you know... The Protestant church basically says the same thing, too. They don't use those words, you know, but they, they come to the same conclusion. It's not enough. You've got to do something. They think their relationship with God is based on their performance. That is a really sad treadmill to get on, people. You know, to wake up in the morning and, or to go to bed at night thinking, oh, man, I really blew it today. I wonder if I'm saved. But you know the comfort of laying down and saying, man, I was a mess today. Thank God I'm securing him. What a difference, huh? No guilt, no condemnation. 
They think as long as they live right, they're okay with God. God likes them. It's a work system. To attempt to live the Christian life by works is to live under constant guilt and constant condemnation. But to understand that salvation is by grace through faith and that we are absolutely secure because of Christ's work is going to bring such peace to the soul. Security is vital to peace. All right? If you don't have security, you never have peace. You'll always be wondering, did I do enough? Did I mess up? Am I in trouble? Am I still saved? We must understand that our salvation is based upon the act of one person. Yeshua the Christ. We've got to get that. The security of our salvation is not based upon our acts. Just as we were all condemned by Adam's act, so we were made righteous by Christ's act. I think one of the greatest passages dealing with our security is Romans 5, 12 through 21. It's a comparison of two men. It's a really simple passage. He's comparing Adam and Christ. There's two men. Each performed a single act that brought forth a single result and the result is experienced by every member of their respective races. The emphasis in this section is on how one man's act affects all he represents. Now, the portrayal of Christ as the last Adam, the counterpart of the first Adam, is given to us in Corinthians. He says, so also it is written, the first man, Adam. You know Adam, he messed up, didn't do such a good job. He was a federal head of the human race. God put him in a position to represent mankind. He blew it. So God brought another representative along. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. So we have two men, Adam and Christ, and all of humanity is represented by one or the other. The acts of the representatives are imputed to all whom they represent. So in Romans 5, 12 through 21, we see that sin is imputed to us through Adam and that righteousness is imputed to us through Yeshua. The word impute means to put to somebody's account, to credit somebody. God took what we owed him, an unpayable debt, and he put it on Christ's account. And Christ paid it in full. That's imputing. And if we're to understand our salvation and its security, we have to understand this. Let me ask you something. Do you have to be perfect to go to heaven? Yes. Yes, you do. Any violation of God's law is sin. And sin, all sin, any sin separates us from God. That's why Yeshua's righteousness is given to us. Because it's perfect. So if you think you're going to work your way, then you got to be perfect. No slip-ups. No mess-ups or you're out. Try that for a while. Look at these texts. He starts out in 12 and he says, Just as through one man. He talks about Adam. Adam sinned. Because of Adam, sin entered the world. Now the main thought of 5, 12 through 21 is found in verse 12. And 18 and 19. 12, 18 and 19 are the crux of this passage. And verse 18 picks up on the comparison as that was started in verse 12, just as. And he completes it when he says even so. So you start in 12, you don't get the even so until you get down to verse 18. Alright? Just as one act of Adam affected every member in the human race, even so the one act of Yeshua affects every member of the elect race. First, we are reminded of what happened to us in Adam. One sin of Adam resulted in men being condemned. Paul is saying that because of that one sin of Adam, 
the whole of mankind is treated as sinners. That's what he said in verse 12. Then in verse 19, he goes further than 18. And it says that not only were all treated as sinners, but all were made or regarded as sinners. And this is my favorite verse in all scripture, because I just I lean on this so much. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That's the half of the equation. That's the Adam part. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. Now here the Greek word for made is kathistomy, and it means to set down in rank, to place in the category, to appoint to a particular class. The word made is not causative, but declarative. Those in Adam were declared sinners. It's imperative that you understand this. By one man's disobedience, many were regarded as sinners. He doesn't say made sinful, but made sinners. They're declared, you're a sinner. It's a declaration, a judicial declaration by God. Adam didn't make men sinful. He represented the human race. When he fell, he declared all men sinful. I believe man was, began sinful. That's, that's how come Adam fell in the first place, all right? The whole human race has been con- constituted legally as sinners. You're all sinners. That's our judicial standing before God. And it's based entirely and solely on Adam's one act of disobedience. Because of Adam's one sin, we're all made sinners. That's a judicial act. He decreed that the whole of humanity should be represented by the first man and should suffer the consequence of that man's actions. We've all sinned in Adam. And with Adam, because he was our federal head, our representative, and therefore God pronounced us all to be sinners. Well, that's one side. Thank God there's another side to this parallel. He says, even so. Even so. Through the obedience of the one, you got sin on one side, you got obedience on the other, you got made sinners on one side, you got made righteous on the other side. By the righteous act of one man, the Lord Yeshua, justification came that leads to life. The great truth that we see here is that we all, all we have, all we are before God comes out of the obedience of the last Adam, the Lord Yeshua. Our salvation is based entirely on Him, from Him and in Him. And my being a sinner came entirely from Adam So my righteousness comes entirely from the Lord Yeshua. That's why I love this verse, the second half. Even so, through, not my obedience, nothing I can do, but through the obedience of the one. Because of his obedience, I'm made righteous. Now how secure are you then? Your assurance of salvation comes not from your feelings, but from your understanding. Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing that you knew about, you were declared a sinner. And so look at yourself in Christ. And you see that though you have done nothing to deserve righteousness, you're declared righteous. That's the parallel. We must get rid of all these thoughts that are of our actions gaining and keeping our salvation. We're justified, declared righteous because of the obedience of Yeshua and Yeshua alone. He lived a sinless life in total obedience to the law of God and then He died a substitutionary death on our behalf. And because I'm in Him, because of my union with Him, 
I have all he is and has. People say, you've got to keep the law to go to heaven. I kept it perfectly. What? Yes, in Yeshua. I'm in him. I share his righteousness. Did he keep the law absolutely perfectly? Sure he did. He's sinless. Peter put it this way. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You were healed. The end of Romans 5.19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The people who belong to Christ are made righteous. The word made, kathistomy, it means to set down in rank, to place in a category, to appoint to a particular class. You have been appointed, declared by God as righteous. The word has the same meaning and the same force on both sides of the parallel here. We're declared righteous on the grounds of Christ's obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Yeshua was regarded and treated as a sinner so that we might be regarded and treated as righteous in the sight of God. As a believer, I'm righteous. And I will always be righteous because I'm in Christ. I am as righteous as as Christ is righteous. When I get to heaven, I'll deserve to be there. Because of Christ. Not because of me. Not because of anything I did. But I have His righteousness. I share. I died in Him. I was resurrected in Him. I live in Him. And because Christ never changes, neither will I. And because He's not going to get kicked out of the Trinity, I'm secure. Because my security is in Him. Not in me. Are you certain of your salvation? Your salvation of mine depends only entirely and exclusively upon the obedience of Christ. That is a really secure salvation. I like that. And I'm not teaching it because I like it. I think that's what the Bible teaches. I just really like what the Bible teaches. Secure in Him. Closer to God I can never be, because in the person of Christ, I'm as close as He. Amen? All right, let's go back to Jude here. He says, to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. Just think about this for a minute. Because of your position in Christ, you're able to stand in the presence of the glory of God with great joy. Not with fear, not with shame. Can you imagine that? That's amazing. I'm standing before Yahweh in his full glory and I'm like, I'm joyful. Again, because I got a right to be there. He says the presence of his glory. It's the Greek word katanopeon, from kata meaning against and enopos mean in the sight of. So it means in the very presence, in the very sight, in front of His glory. I can stand. Because I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. Just like the B'nai Elohim stood in His council. Believers are in the council of God now. We stand in His presence. And notice this. Here's how we stand. Blameless. This is like the song we heard this morning. Flawless. We're blameless. There's no, there's no flaw in us. There's nothing wrong with us. This is the word amamos, 
which is literally without spot or blemish above reproach. It was used to describe the absence of defects in sacrificial animals. We stand before him blameless. Why is there not? I mean, listen, people, there's plenty in our lives to carry blame, right? But not before him because he sees us in Christ. And when he sees us in Christ, we're blameless. We're righteous before him. Look at Colossians 1.22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and above reproach. That's your position, people. You know, it's so important that you can distinguish through the scriptures your position and your practice. Your practice is always going to be stumbling. You're always going to be, you know, falling. You're always going to be having problems. But in your position, you stand righteous. And I think the greatest way to strengthen your practice is to understand your position. If I know who I am in Christ, if I know the love of God for me no matter what, it motivates me to want to live a holy, righteous life. Because I'm not beat down with guilt and condemnation. I understand when I fail, I'm still loved and that... Just encourage me to keep going. Anyone who knows the God of the Bible would think that being in His presence would cause great fear and shame. I mean, you read through the Tanakh, and man, when God showed up, people fell on their face. Even in the New Testament, Peter, you know, oh, when he realized who Yeshua was, he falls on the ground, you know? That's what happens when people are in the presence of God. But by the work of Yeshua and His grace, we enter His presence with joy. Fear is banished because we're righteous. We got nothing to hide. We got nothing to be ashamed of. Positionally, we're holy. Verse 25, he says, To the only God, our Savior, through Yeshua the Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. He says, To the only God. The word God is a translation of the word theos, the Greek word theos. I said this before, Theos is a horrible translation. I think they made a huge mistake putting this in the New Testament. Theos means mighty one. It can refer to person, it can refer to a man, it can refer to deity. The context determines its meaning. But assuming the word always refers to a deity is is an error. Because the Greek referred to many with authority as Theos, mighty ones. It's similar to Elohim in the Tanakh. Similar word. In Elohim is used of a lot of other deities besides the Lord. So I don't think it's a great translation. It's used of many different human and spiritual entities, and therefore I don't think it's a good substitute for Yahweh or Yeshua. It is Yahweh, the creator and standard of the universe that we are to give glory to. Theos could mean a lot of different entities, but there's only one Yahweh. And I think they should have translated Yahweh or Yeshua in a lot of these texts instead of this Theos. By saying the only God here, this does, this does not mean there's no other gods. Right, people say, see, it says there's only God, there's, there's no Elohim, there's none of this other stuff. Really? Well, look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, 5. But even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Paul says, you know, there's a lot of different deities up there. They're all lesser deities. They were created by and they are subject to Yahweh. And according to Deuteronomy 32.8, Yahweh, when He divided up the nations and the table of nations, He gave the nations over to these lesser deities to rule them. Because they didn't want Yahweh ruling over them. They wouldn't obey. They wouldn't submit. So He says, fine, I'm done with you. 
Here, you like these gods? Take these deities and let them rule over you. I'm starting all over. In the very next chapter, he calls Abraham. But his grace is seen right in the beginning of the call of Abraham. Because he says, Abraham, you're going to reach the nations. The ones I just rejected, the very next chapter, I'm going to use you to call them back. And that's what we see in the New Testament. And it's interesting that, you know, in Luke, he sends out the 70 to reach the 70 nations that have been rejected to call them back. And he's calling them back to himself. So God is gracious every which way we turn, all right? But Israel was his people. He turned them over to lesser deities. So when it's saying he is the only God, it's an ancient and biblical way of saying he's his incomparability of sovereignty, not exclusivity of existence. It doesn't mean there's no others. It's saying he's above everyone. He's the most powerful compared to all the authorities. He didn't mean there weren't any other authorities. It just means he is so far above them. There's no comparison. He says, God, our Savior. Savior, here's the word soter. It refers to the agent of salvation or deliverance, the one who rescues, delivers, and saves. Now, usually, we associate the word Savior with Yeshua, right? But here, Jude attaches it to the Father. He's not alone in this. We see this a lot of times in the New Testament. We see it a lot of times in the Tanakh. He says, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Now, again, this is Theos, so it's, you know, Theos, my Savior, so you don't, you know, we assume he's referring to the Father. Same thing in Titus 3, 4, and 5. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. So we see this, this idea of the Father being a Savior, and we see it in the Tanakh. And this is a verse that I absolutely love. This is just a cool verse, you know. You read in English, it doesn't mean much anything. Okay, you're like, yeah, 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 okay. But, you know, you get into the language here, and it's just beautiful. He says, behold, El is the word God there. El, and El means mighty one, God. El is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the word there, Lord, is Yah, and God is Yahweh. For Yah, Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my Yeshua. Beautiful, man. Incredible, incredible verse. El is my Yeshua. I'll trust. Yah, Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become my Yeshua. He's my Savior. Now, I don't know who Jesus is, but he Yeshua here is the Savior, Okay. So Yahweh is our Yeshua. Listen to this. And Yeshua is our Yahweh. Okay? We're going to get into this in the Gospel of John. He says, through Yeshua the Christ, our Lord. Now, through is dia here. It identifies the conduit, so to speak, through which salvation flows from the Father. Yeshua is the intermediary. He's the meteor. He's the great high priest. Listen, once you get to the New Testament, you cannot talk about salvation apart from Yeshua. You can't do it. Okay? Jews are done. They're done. They either accept Yeshua or they're out. There's no more. Well, we just believe in God. We're going to hang on to that. No. You can't do it. John put it this way. First John. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. You think this would apply to Jews? <laughs> the Jews deny the Son? Okay, then they don't have the Father. Alright, that's the New Testament teaching. That's the end of it. That's the definitive answer. It's final. Okay, once Yeshua comes on scene, He is the promised salvation, the promised deliverer. You either accept Him 
and go on with God or you reject Him and you're done. There's no salvation apart from Him. And Jude closes this letter by saying, Be glory, majesty, dominion, authority, before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Glory is doxa, which means to give the proper opinion or estimation of something. You know, it's basically talking about the worth of somebody. When you talk about God's attributes, you're giving Him glory. You're talking about who He is. Majesty, megalosune, signifies prominence, importance, preeminence. This word is only used of the Father. Dominion, kratos, denotes the present significance of force or strength rather than its exercise. And authority, exousia, refers to the authority and combines the idea of right and might. Exousia is the power to do something and was a technical term used in court where it was described as a legal right. So it's not just the power to do it, it's the right to do it. The idea is that God rules over all creation with no exception clauses. He's the absolute ruler over all. We can give glory, majesty, power, and authority to God only through Yeshua the Christ. It's the only way we can do that. And Jude closes with his final triad. Remember, all through this book he's used triads. And he closes with one. He says, before all time, that's past, now and future forever. Basically, he's saying from eternity past to eternity future. That's it. You've got to give him glory, majesty, dominion, honor before all time and for all time. It's it. And then he ends with amen. Amen is basically a statement of confirmation. It's like saying, so let it be. Jude's done. Now, believer, when we understand what Yahweh has done for us in salvation, we will understand that we are eternally Secure in His love. And that's one of Jude's main points. He starts and ends with it, and in the middle he tells how rotten people are and how far away people get from the truth and how even believers get away from the truth, but we're to go after them, but in the whole time keeping in your mind, we're secure in Him. Believers can fall away from the faith, but they'll never fall away from God because they're secure. And I think this doctrine should bring us great peace. We never seem to live up to who we are in Yahweh. But no matter how messed up we get, He always sees us in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the privilege, Lord, to look at Your Word. Father, what great truth. So how we rejoice, Lord, in the plan of salvation that You took us, set Your love on us from eternity past, called us, brought us into Your family, made us Your children, seated us at your heavenly banquet table, brought us into sacred space, Lord, and love us for eternity. It's hard to comprehend, Lord, especially because we're such practical creatures. We look at our daily life. We look at how much we mess up, how many times we fall short of what you called us to be. And yet, Lord, to understand that we're in Christ, we rejoice. May that understanding motivate us to live a life of holiness and righteousness before you that we, Lord, may demonstrate you to the world. Amen.